When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking with the great Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, building a global climate movement. He says the fight to end the fossil fuel era is happening almost in secret as local activists battle on thousands of fronts around the world. We'll also speak with Anna DeVere Smith, the actor and playwright. We'll talk about her new work on the school-to-prison pipeline and on life in her hometown of Baltimore since the police killing of Freddie Gray there last year. First up today, to prepare for the Iowa caucuses next Monday, we turn to Frank Rich to try to understand the Republicans. Frank Rich, of course, writes a column on politics for New York Magazine. Before that, he wrote for the New York Times opinion pages. He's also executive producer of Veep, the comedy series on HBO that's about American politics. Frank Rich, we want to take a step back from the daily media deluge, look at the the bigger picture of American politics. Let's take the perspective of a year ago. What was the part what were the party establishments thinking? What were the mainstream media pundits thinking about where we would be at this moment facing the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary? Well, I think that many people and myself certainly among them just assumed It's going to be a really tedious Bush-Clinton race with uh, Clinton having an assured, insurmountable path to the Democratic nomination and Jeb Bush being having all the money and the and sort of the establishment backing. So how how could the the mainstream media and the party establishments be so wrong about American politics in, in an election year? Well, I think, first of all. A lot of the, the the so-called establishments of both parties, and particularly the Republican Party, and certainly uh, what uh, Sarah Palin would call the lamestream media, <laughs> are not really in touch with a lot of the anger out there, and that it would flame up in both parties. I have to say, I've been caught by surprise, to some extent, by the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. In the case of Trump, I don't I don't think there's uh, much excuse for the press missing it. During 2012, when Romney was being coronated at the Republican convention, I worked on a piece where I just spent the entire week listening and and reading right-wing media. And by right-wing media, I do not mean Fox News. I mean Mark Levin, Michael Savage, uh, Glenn Beck, um, you know, these sites like Twitchy and, and what have you. Um, and what came through in real time as the convention played out was a complete loathing of the Republican Party um, by these people. They they didn't like Romney. They didn't like Romney's wife, Anne. They didn't like Karl Rove. And they didn't like Fox News. And the mainstream media sort of looks in, I think, on the right often by looking at Fox News. But Fox News actually isn't the real 
right-wing base of the Republican Party. It's closer to the establishment. It's the creature of uh, Rupert Murdoch and, and Roger Ailes. And so this is all sort of happening, but sort of off the radar, even though tens of millions of listeners listen to Mark, Mark Levin and people like him. And so it was clear that they were very dissatisfied with Romney. And of course, they'd be, it only follows that they would have no use uh, for any of the so-called establishment candidates that would appear in this cycle, and there, and 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 so they shouldn't have been surprised. And frankly, this is the movement that's been visible in the Republican Party ever since John McCain invited Palin onto his ticket eight years ago. I, I see that last uh, Thursday, the the venerable conservative magazine National Review published an entire issue under the headline Against Trump, 22 different essays. The magazine's editors called Trump, quote, a philosophically unmoored opportunist who would trash the broad conservative ideological consensus within the GOP, close quote. Do you think the National Review is right about Donald Trump? Uh, I think they're right, but I also think they're out of touch. First of all, this is chickens coming home to roost. This movement is the extension of the Palin and Tea Party movements. There's no question about it. Uh, it's, just, it's many of the same people, not just Palin herself, but many of the same voters and many of the same uh, angers that, that's pitched basically at minorities, at immigrants, um, at uh, the, the so-called social and cultural uh, elites, including those in the Republican Party. Bill Kristol, who's one of the uh, you know people who's created this National Review uh, package, only eight years ago was taking credit for his brilliance in discovering Sarah Palin in Alaska and recommending her as a potential vice presidential candidate to the Republican establishment and John McCain. So they, their chickens are coming home to roost. Um, they're right about Trump in this sense. Trump has no ideology at all. He is a showman. He's a, 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 businessman, a, a businessman with a somewhat checkered uh, career, not as he presents it. He, he doesn't sit around reading National Review or looking at Heritage Foundation reports. He probably, if was given a pop quiz to identify which positions are associated with which parties, couldn't get a passing grade. So they're right about that. But I think the thing that really, really infuriates them is he owes them nothing. Uh, he doesn't owe anything to any of these people, and that's exactly what endears him to the clack that is for him. And, of course, if you went deeper into the signatories of uh, this National Review package, many of them for Ted Cruz, who is a, uh, a, a, a quite hard-right ideological Republican. He is the Republican they want. But how effective is he? You know, he shut down the government and it completely backfired. They don't really have an alternative candidate. That's the problem. And meanwhile, you're seeing, as the New York Times and others have been reporting, the Washington Post, too, that the traditional sort of establishment-type Republicans, the deep-pocketed corporate chamber of commerce executives, uh, bankers, uh, they're, they're they're happier with Trump than they are with Cruz. They, they they feel, and they're probably right, that Trump is somewhat malleable, that they can make a deal with him and talk him out of things. 
And I think, which you can't do with uh, Ted Cruz, and I think they're right, because Trump has changed, as his critics say, he's constantly changed his positions, and it's whoever he talked to last or watched whatever he watched on the television last. And, and, it, and they, may, they may have some point, unlike the National Review, these uh, business types, that uh, Trump would be less of a disaster for the country than Cruz would be. Um, both of them are a disaster, however, for the Republican Party. And they're, they're the two sides unite, because Cruz will, will as, as people like Bob Dole are saying and, and many others, would give um, uh, the Republican Party the biggest uh, shellacking probably since Goldwater in 64, because he's so far to the right. And Trump, uh, perhaps in a good way, some might, some might argue, will destroy the Republican Party because he has no allegiance to it, or it's, or it's uh, Poobahs, Bill Crystals and Rich Lowry's of this world. And he'll do whatever the hell he wants. And, and he's, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to get elected, but anything could happen. One of the many reasons the National Review traditional conservatives are, are uh, outraged by Trump is that he, he has not been a consistent voice in fighting abortion. He's been kind of for gay rights at different times in the past. He's been friends with Bill and Hillary, you know, 20 years ago. Well, they're right about that, leaving the Clintons out of it. Look, I was at a gay wedding in New York uh, a couple of years ago where Donald Trump was front and center. He can, you can't do you can't be a big businessman in New York uh and be uh, homophobic indeed the one of the two grooms was the son of another very powerful real estate uh magnate in New York City. Um he of course he's pro choice. You know, and he'll say whatever he has to say uh, this week or this month, but it's it's hilarious to me that he's leading, in, according to polling, among evangelicals. Jerry Falwell Jr. invited him to speak on Martin Luther King Day at, at Liberty uh, University, you know, down in Virginia Beach. He he, they're willing to suck it up, and however time they don't care how many times he's been married or what his views are. It seems about any of the social issues, they just want to win, and they loathe. Um, the Mitch McConnells and John Boehner's who, and presumably now the Paul Ryan, who they feel have betrayed the hard right's deepest interests. Well, this may be getting into the weeds a little too deeply, but there's this uh, woman named Nicole Wallace who was who was uh, uh, on Bill Maher recently. She was part of the George W. Bush administration. She worked with the McCain campaign. She's uh, sort of a moderate in the Republican world. On Bill Maher, she said she, she was reconciling herself to the idea of Donald Trump as their candidate. Let's talk about Nicole Wallace a second. She she's a very good weather vane for what you're talking about. She didn't just work for George W. Bush and McCain. She she was uh, famously uh, the one who was in charge of Sarah Palin yeah. uh, during 2008 and had to get her a wardrobe. And then wrote a tell-all book about it. Yeah. She's a completely old line Bush establishment Republican. That exactly, and she I think lives in New York. She so she exactly either New York or Washington. She exactly typifies the kind of corporate interests I was talking about who are now reconciling themselves to Trump because they'd rather have Trump than Cruz. And this is exactly the kind of person that's hated by the Crystals and and the others who signed up for the National Review piece attacking Trump. So did the, do the Jeb Bush forces have a plan B uh, at this point, or is it just whatever? I think their plan—I think you've answered the question. I think the plan B is Donald Trump. 
I think, you know, we've, there've been constant pundit pieces. So many pundits are embarrassed, including, you know, places like the Upshot and the New York Times, which is supposedly data-driven analysis of politics, but is repeatedly pronounced uh, Trump dead ever, ever since he attacked John McCain back at the beginning of his candidacy. Uh, they, the same, these same sort of punditocracy of saying, well, Marco Rubio's the one who's going to rise. He's going to be the answer to the failure of Jeb Bush, but it just never happened. You know, he's, he's in the low teens in most polling at best. And so they don't have, they don't have, and Christie hasn't happened. John Kasich hasn't happened. And Jeb Bush, you know, I guess he still has the exclamation point after his name, but not much else. <laughs> um, so no, so their plan B, I think Nicole Wallace, uh, as you described it, attributed it, uh, articulated it perfectly. Um, to make peace with Donald Trump, because that's the closest they can find to the kind of wealthy, old-line Republic, country club Republican uh, uh, they can deal with. And, um, and the thing is that even Nicole Wallace has to answer for the fact that she invited the heathens in <laughs> with Sarah Palin. So now they're all covering their tracks, and they're going to kiss the Donald's ring, I guess. So we're all looking forward to uh, Iowa, but of course Iowa is a tricky state to predict because of the the nutty way the caucuses work. You have to show up to vote. The big question is who shows up. Some people think uh, since Trump does not have much of an organization on the ground, the people who show up for the caucuses are the ones who somebody calls them, somebody drives them there, somebody reminds them of what to do. Those are not the Donald Trump people, or or are they? I think it's foolhardy to predict. The, 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 the same people who have been saying that Trump doesn't have a ground game for the Iowa caucuses are, have been wrong about Trump at every other uh, juncture. So we, don't, we honestly don't know. Furthermore, uh, leaving that aside, Iowa's a, a bellwether of nothing. It's not a bellwether <laughs> of who wins the nomination. But it is a bellwether of one thing. It is, uh, it is a very, in the Republican side, very, very strong evangelical vote. And if Trump wins, that's an unexpected boost for him. And, it, and it's a possibility it could happen, I guess. If Cruz loses... I think it's pretty much devastating for Cruz because he has worked harder than anyone to court the evangelical uh, voters. His father is a homophobic, right-wing evangelical preacher. So if he can't win Iowa, he's in big trouble. If, if Trump, by some chance, wins it, that's, that's, that may be an augury of the, everything's going to collapse around him. Uh, it could be, but we don't know. It could be that, you know, the naysayers are right. He doesn't have any organization that will get people to caucuses. By the way, the the, the Hillary Clinton campaigns are saying this, a lot of the same thing about uh, Bernie Sanders in Iowa, that she has a great ground game, but they said the same thing when she lost Obama eight years ago. So we don't know until we see the actual uh, caucusing uh, and the results. Frank Rich, he's columnist for New York Magazine and executive producer of Veep. What can you tell us about the new season of Veep? Well, we ended we ended last season on a tie. I'm in Los Angeles now. We're shooting the new season, and I can say really absolutely nothing except uh, for people who enjoy the show. There will be some real surprise, <laughs> and uh, it's and our biggest challenge, of course, is. Uh, uh, keeping ahead of, uh, without ever directly referring to uh, the insanity that's going on in the actual world of American politics. And this year has made it tougher than, than usual. 
Greg Ridge, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk with Bill McKibben. He wrote the first book on global warming, The End of Nature. It's been translated into two dozen languages. He's also the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement. It's organized 20,000 rallies around the world in every country except for North Korea. He was the lead organizer of the People's Climate March in New York City in September 2014, one of the great political events of our era with hundreds of thousands of people participating. And Bill went to jail protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. After he got out, President Obama ruled against the pipeline. He's written a dozen books, most recently Oil and Honey, the education of an unlikely activist. And he wrote recently for Tom Dispatch and the Nation about how to stop the fossil fuel industry from wrecking our world. Bill McKibben, welcome to the program. Last time we talked was after the People's Climate March in New York City. Several hundred thousand of people were in the streets. At that point, you said you had, quote, a fairly rare emotion, hope. Uh, how are you doing with hope at this point? Well, look, there's continued to be strong movement that's built around climate change, and we've won some important victories in the last year. The Keystone Pipeline was maybe the most signal example, but investors have also pulled out of support for what would have been the largest coal mine in the earth uh, in Australia. And uh, there's been a series of other things like that that show that when we fight, we win. The existence of that movement meant that the negotiations in Paris went better than the negotiations in Copenhagen six years before. No leader could afford to go home to their capital completely empty-handed. So we got something out of uh, Paris. Um, You know, more rhetoric than substance, but at least the rhetoric was good and something we can start trying to hold leaders to. That said, the... um, Science has grown steadily darker, John, over the last um, little while. Uh, 2015 was the warmest year for which we have records. It crushed the old record by an awful lot. And we're beginning to see the just endless frightening uh, outcomes of that kind of warming. I got to say I'm obsessed this week with this story emerging out of South America and Latin America, that the... uh, very rapid spread of a novel mosquito-borne virus, the Zika virus, spreading like dengue and other diseases very fast in this new mosquito-friendly world we've built. Uh, it's It has such horrible effect on pregnant women and their children that the health ministers in five countries have now told women not to have babies. That seems almost science fiction to me. It's kind of symptomatic of the world we're starting to create. That that certainly is scary. Let's talk about uh, divestment uh, for a minute, where there's more encouraging news. You're you're turning out to be one of America's best investment advisors. What is your advice today about the stock market? Well, our advice all along has been to sell out of coal and gas and oil, um, not for financial reasons, for moral ones. It's completely wrong at this point in human history to be profiting off the wreckage of the climate, which is what those companies are trying to do. 
As it turns out, it's not a very profitable business. If you'd taken our advice and gotten out of these stocks three years ago, uh, you would have made lots of money or lost lots of less money. <laughs> um, they've been the, the absolute dogs on the stock market. And so it's uh, uh, the, the advice continues and this divestment campaign spreads very fast. It's now more than, I think, closing in on $4 trillion worth of endowments that have gotten out of some of the fossil fuels anyway. And more to the point, it had the effect, this campaign, of being the, the vehicle to drive home the underlying message that these companies have in their reserves five times as much carbon as any scientist on Earth thinks we could afford to burn safely. Uh, in that way, they are rogue companies, as the head of the Bank of England told the insurance industry a few months ago, there are enormous stranded assets out there in carbon terms. It's a carbon bubble. People should avoid risky exposure. And you wrote recently for Tom Dispatch and The Nation about the fight to stop new fossil fuel projects. We call it the battle for the future. It's being fought on thousands of fronts. Uh, let's talk about some examples. One of my favorites is the kayaktivists of Portland. Uh, tell us about them. Yeah. Look, last, um, last summer, Shell announced plans to go drill in the Arctic, even though scientists have said we must leave that carbon safely underground. They staged their big drilling rigs from Seattle and Portland, and in both cases, brave activists, many of them in boats, uh, blocked for days the egress of those giant drilling rigs. Uh, they caused so much commotion that uh, by the end of the year, Shell announced that they had no more plans to drill in the Arctic, and that's very, very good news. So the activists of Portland are some of my uh, favorites of the current local movements. Uh, what are your favorites? Oh, there are so many people in so many places doing so many things. Uh, you know, just today uh, comes news of our colleagues in London sentenced to um, uh, jail for their efforts to block the expansion of Heathrow Airport on the theory correct that we should be reducing, not increasing air travel uh, all over the world. People are standing up against fracking and in record numbers. It's remarkable to see how quickly these messages are spreading. You live in Vermont, and your governor has offered a divestment plan just a couple of weeks ago. Tell us what's going on in Vermont. Well, what's very important about his plan is that he's not only calling for Vermont to divest from coal, but he's saying that it should divest from ExxonMobil. Uh, because of that company's um, remarkably, uh, well, maybe, I mean, because it's maybe the biggest corporate scandal of all time. Let's just be honest. Beginning in the fall, reporters from Inside Climate News and the Los Angeles Times discovered that ExxonMobil had known everything there was to know about climate change 30 years ago, that they used that knowledge to plan their own activities, building all their drilling platforms higher to account for sea level rise, bidding on parcels in the Arctic they knew would soon melt. But even as they were doing that, what they were telling the world was that the whole thing was a lie. They were busy spreading millions upon millions of dollars to build the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that slowed us down from doing anything for a quarter century. 
Um, so, you know, already there are investigations underway from the New York and California attorney generals of their behavior. But you don't need to wait for any uh, investigation to make it clear that this is morally outrageous. Um, um, as I say, probably the biggest corporate scandal of all time. In L.A., where our show is based, there, there's a, a new environmental hazard that I hadn't thought about very much before. Uh, we'd been focusing here on burning fossil fuels, but what's going on here, actually just 20 miles from our studio here, is one of the world's largest known methane leaks has been going on for months. This is a, a natural gas storage field. We're told that... So far, uh, this leak out in the San Fernando Valley has put out the equivalent of 2.1 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. Uh, the L.A. Times yesterday said that's more greenhouse gas than 440,000 cars emit in a year. Uh, this surge of pollution, as I say, it's not the result of burning fossil fuel, but rather comes in the form of, of methane gas can you tell us about the effect of methane gas on the atmosphere as opposed to burning it? So our biggest greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide. That's what happens when you burn coal or gas or oil. But it's not the only one. There are other gases whose molecular structure traps heat as well. And one of them is CH4, methane, or natural gas. When you burn it, it produces less carbon than coal. That's why some politicians have said, oh, it's a bridge fuel to the future. But if it re escapes unburned into the atmosphere, it is 84 times more potent than CO2 in molecule for molecule yeah. in trapping heat. That's why this disaster in L.A. at, at Porter Ranch, the Aliso Canyon um, blowout, I mean, it's, if you could see methane, this thing would make Deepwater Horizon look like a picnic. Um, it's unbelievable how much methane is spewing into the air. Yes, it's having direct and immediate effects on the surrounding neighbors. Yes, it's having an astonishing effect on the atmosphere. It's the equivalent of driving something like 7 million cars for a day. It's just crazy. And it illustrates why there is an increasing desire to stand up to fracking in all forms because natural gas is tremendously dangerous. Nevertheless, state officials have said the gas company in Southern California has not violated any regulations, and gas company officials say they followed state law governing underground storage wells, even went beyond the requirements. What do you conclude from that? All one could conclude, I guess, at best is that the regulations aren't strong enough and that the people who are following them at the utility are not good at what they do. And above all, what one needs to conclude is that methane is too dangerous stuff to be messing around with. Leave it under the ground. The the reason we know about this is it's in a suburban neighborhood. You have to wonder how many other methane leaks there are around the world that, that we don't know about. I think that that's exactly a good thing to be wondering. <laughs> uh, we need to talk uh, for a minute about Bernie and Hillary to the Republicans. They look pretty much the same on climate change. Is that your view? Well, Bernie's been very outspoken on climate change and described it as the biggest problem facing the world. It's been good to see uh, Secretary Clinton beginning to echo some of those remarks in the course of the year. We were happy, for instance, when 
in September, she came on board against the Keystone Pipeline. We were happier that Bernie did it in September of 2011 and was instrumental in the whole fight. But, you know, um, um, you take what you can get. Hillary has recently announced two goals. Number one, the U.S. will have, I'm quoting uh, from her website, the U.S. will have more than half a billion solar panels installed by the end of Hillary Clinton's first term. Number two, the U.S. will generate enough clean, renewable energy to power every home in America within 10 years of Hillary Clinton taking office. How does that sound to you? Sounds like it's good. We've got to push things at at least that pace, and the faster we go, the better. Bill McKibben, he wrote recently for Tom Dispatch and The Nation about how to stop the fossil fuel industry from wrecking our world. Bill, thank you. It's been great to have you on the show. A great pleasure. Take care, John. Now it's time to talk with Anna DeVere Smith. She's an actor and playwright, probably best known as Gloria Acolytus on Nurse Jackie on Showtime. She's also created that new form of theater where she interviews scores of individuals and then performs on stage with as many as 52 that she does in one production. She's the winner of a MacArthur Award and she teaches at NYU. Anna DeVere Smith, you've been working recently in Baltimore, where Freddie Gray, that 25-year-old black man, was killed by the police last April on what they call a rough ride in the back of a police van. It broke his neck. Six police officers have been charged in his death. The jury in the first trial couldn't reach a verdict. The rest of the trials will begin soon. I know you grew up in Baltimore. What was Baltimore like for black people in those days compared with today? Well, um, it was a de facto segregation. Um, So uh, pretty much blacks lived with blacks. Uh, Gentiles lived with Gentiles. Jews lived with Jews. And, uh, you know, anybody who wasn't one of those three things was probably called black. I remember there was a, two Japanese-American girls in my neighborhood, but it was sort of like we didn't know where to place anybody else. You know, um, Baltimore now is, it looks to me, uh, like a disaster area. So many uh, places that I knew from my youth, and I, I really left pretty much when I was 16, only went back occasionally, but there's, it's just broken down, boarded up buildings, and I think nowhere near the kind of opportunity that even in an African-American community, a black community, Negro community, that I had, you know, part of it's because industry has left, uh, part of it is because uh, crack cocaine came in, I mean, you hear all kinds of different reasons that would have caused a pretty solid black working class and what would be called a black middle class to begin to disintegrate in Baltimore. I know your mother was a teacher. You've said your aunts were teachers, all of their friends were teachers. Now you're doing a new project that involves teachers in schools, the Pipeline Project. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so... The Pipeline Project is about um, how poverty uh, really manifests in black, uh, brown, and Native American communities in such a way that the likelihood that a kid is going to 
end up in the juvenile justice system and then in prison is, is very, very high. And I think you know that there are a lot of people in America who are concerned at the incarceration rates in our country, and it's one of the few places, my understanding, that that uh, Democrats and Republicans even agree that we have to do something about the number of people who are being locked up. And kids are a part of that. Uh, some people call this the school-to-prison pipeline, and the Justice Department has statistics that prove that uh, poor kids of color are more likely to be suspended or expelled from school for things that, you know, sometimes aren't very clear. It's something called willful defiance. Um, you know, if you sort of look at the teacher the wrong way, that's an example. And, you know, so uh, we're, people are doing a lot of work to try to turn that back to figure out, you know, how to keep kids in school. Myself, um, even as I got into this project under the umbrella of the school, the prison pipeline, I feel it's a little bit dangerous to uh, blame schools and teachers for something that is really rooted in, in, in poverty in the way that people live without opportunity. And just to remind our listeners who may not be familiar with your performances, you take a social and political issue, you interview a hundred people or more who come from a broad spectrum of perspectives. Then you take about, what, two dozen of the characters yourself and recreate them, their speech, their gestures. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing uh, thing. We saw you a couple of months ago here in L.A. on the broad stage in Santa Monica. More recently, you performed in, in Baltimore. I imagine the doing this in Baltimore after Freddie Gray is different from doing it in Santa Monica. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I uh, ended up uh, doing my research in Baltimore by a series of uh, sort of unexpected um, events. I ended up uh, postponing what was going to be a research period in March of last year, and I had moved it to May only to arrive in Baltimore right after the riot or the unrest or the events, whatever you want to call it. And so certainly when I went there in December to perform um, for Baltimore, I mean, you know, it's a city that is uh, really, uh, you know, they don't know what they're sitting on because, as you mentioned when we began talking, you know, the trials are just going to be starting. And it's always exciting, I have to say, to be performing in an environment where the issues are very alive and relevant. We have some some clips we're, we're going to listen to starting with a young woman from Baltimore that you spoke with and then recreated on stage named India Sledge. Say a few words about India Sledge. Who is she and how did you find her? Yeah, so I met India um, in a program that is, you know, sort of like a GED program, you know, sort of finishing your high school education. She actually left either middle school or the beginning of high school because she was pregnant. And she's now had two children and is uh, still quite young and has gone back to try to get her high school diploma. And so that's why I met her. And, you know, I think I and we were all very charmed by her. And that's why why she ended up in the show. But it's also because I think that she gives a very good sort of sociological um, evaluation of the environment that she lives in. So here from the Pipeline Project Baltimore chapter, the section called The Death of Freddie Gray, very briefly, Anna DeVere Smith doing India Sledge. My boyfriend Jake was leery 
Walker, he was walking to the store, and the police jacked him up and threw him against the wall for no reason. Checked him for no reason. And since that time, his mom's like, I've got to get away from here. Because you know, around this area, that's all it is. Around here, it's just drug dealers, drug dealers, drug dealers. Uh, for your project on the school-to-prison pipeline, you talked to all kinds of people all, all over the place. You said you did some work in Northern California. You talked to a really interesting guy named Michael Tubbs in Stockton. Who is Michael Tubbs? How did you find him? Well, Michael Tubbs is a star. He is well-known in, in California. He's the youngest councilman, I believe, that Stockton has ever had. And right now he's running for mayor. Uh, 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 extraordinary young man, graduated from Stanford and, you know, started campaigning then when he was still in school. And what interested me so much about Michael and other uh, friends of his that I met in Stockton is here's a bankrupt city, you know, um, homicide-ridden city, and I met young people like Michael who have great educations who are coming back home to try to make a difference. And so I found it to be pretty irresistible. And like India, he too, in just talking about his city, gives us something that I think sociologists would be interested in. So here's Anna DeVere Smith as Michael Tubbs, a city councilman in Stockton, uh, talking about reading aloud in a classroom. And I was reading about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I got to the point he's assassinated. I tried to go through the page really quickly because I really didn't want to talk to six-year-olds about death. So try to turn the page really quickly. And one little boy raised his hand, Mr. Tubbs, my uncle got shot. Then another little boy said, Mr. Tubbs, my cousin got shot. Before I could turn the page, Every student in that classroom knew somebody had been shot as a victim of violent death. And then we have the conclusion of the Michael Tubbs segment. What life is this? When I can't see past 18, just want to be alive at 25. And it's just so heartbreaking. Prison or death. There's really no other opportunity for boys and young men of color and Stockton. Prison or death. Anna DeVere Smith, you recently described yourself as a daughter of the teachers of Baltimore. Uh, one of the people you portray in the Pipeline Project is a teacher from Philadelphia ma- named Stephanie Williams. Tell us about her. Stephanie is a young teacher who I met by accident when I was going into a school in North Philadelphia. And uh, I don't expect anybody to recognize me in North Philadelphia. And she stopped and she stared at me and pointed at me. And usually that's because somebody has seen me on Nurse Jackie or on um, on the West Wing. Uh, but actually she knew my play, one of my early plays, Fires in the Mirror. And um, and she's a she's what an ES teacher working with kids who have emotional problems, and you know in in the story that she tells us, you that's why I'm careful about just calling this a school to prison pipeline because you get a sense here of what teachers go through, and I think we would my 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 idea would be to make schools that are habitable for everybody, not just not just the kids, but the teachers and the counselors, the nurses, the janitors. We need to turn schools back into communities that are 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 fulfilling for people and that and that make people healthy. And you can hear as you listen to Stephanie Williams some of the kinds of stresses and pressures that there are on a young teacher who's doing everything she can to do her best as a young woman who graduates 
graduated from Mount Holyoke. She could probably do other things, uh, but here she is, dedicated, and it, it's, it's hard. Let's listen. I felt like I had a whole bunch of hungry, starving people, and, and I had nothing in my hands to give them, even though I tried to give them so much. But it was hard to be that strong day in and day out. It was just, it felt like, it was like running a jail without a gun. That's what it was like. It was like being in jail without a gun. No gun, no handcuffs, no bully clubs. I can't throw you in the closet. I can't do any of that. I got to just keep you in order just by being me. I read in the Washington Post that you're experimenting with new forms for your stage performance to engage the audience directly and and inspire them to action. What what was it that you were doing in Baltimore? How do you think it worked? Yes, and also at Berkeley Repertory Theater this summer, I had an opportunity to experiment with this for a full month. And my idea is to basically just stop the show in the middle and what is normally called the second act to give that over to the audience. So what we do is take an audience of approximately 500 people, divide them up into groups of 20 and send them all over other parts of the theater, backstage, on stage, uh, in, you know, rehearsal rooms and uh, dressing rooms in Baltimore. It was even a, a paint shop. One group met in, another group met on a stairway. And to get the community talking about what they can do after they've seen the first act and asking people to make commitments. And, you know, because in my mind, the audience has got folks who can do much more than me. I'm on stage with a wonderful, I should mention, by the way, jazz musician, Marcus Shelby, is a bass player. Yeah. And we, we can entertain, we can get an audience, we can move an audience, we get you to laugh, get you to cry. But my work is, is just a call. It's a call to action. And there are people in the audience who know a lot more about incarceration than I do, a lot more about education. There's younger people who are, you know, recently out of school or, or in schools. I haven't been in, you know, high school or middle school in many, many years. And also, you know, there's probably somebody in the audience who could write a bigger check than everybody put together. Let's get in here and turn this group of people who are sort of strangers sitting in the dark and try to do what we can to bring them together as a group of active citizens. And so that's what I've been experimenting with. I had a lot of time to work on it in Berkeley and then take it to Baltimore. Wow. Well, one last thing about your stage work. Here on the radio, we do everything we can to eliminate the ums, the ers, and the you knows. I know you take the opposite approach on stage. You think you think they matter. Why? Well, because I think that we all learn language, uh, you know, and we learn it, uh, particularly if we learned it through not just talking but reading and writing, we learn to speak it in what we would consider to be perfectly. But the fact is that for everybody, speaking is a form of jazz. You, you, you've got the words and then you make them into a composition every time you open your mouth. There's kind of a musical quality to your speaking and that music has an effect on people more than the words themselves. And so part of that music and part of the rhythm, of course, is the ums, the you knows, the well, in Baltimore, it's really kids who are who are less than 25 use an expression, uh, you feel me, that then becomes Yefemi, which then becomes Fe, um, and Femi. And, you know, somebody who's just like eight years older uh, would say, you know, in that same space where you would have uh, you feel me, Femi, or Fe, says, uh, you know what I'm saying. And that changes from, you know what I'm saying, to 
you know, Norm Sand to Sand. So all of these things have a rhythmic reality. And that's really what reaches your heart or makes you furious is the tones, the vocal tones that a person has in the song that they sing. And great speakers have uh, an incredible aptitude for that. You know, um, anybody you can think of who is a very compelling speaker isn't just saying words. They're, they're really singing to you. More information at AnnaDevereSmithPipeline.org. One word, AnnaDevereSmithPipeline.org. Anna DeVere Smith, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you so very much for everything you do. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. We had additional production help this week from Melissa Figueroa. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.